Let's open up in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 of Matthew 7, the words of Jesus. And the title of this sermon is The Problem with Prayer, which is you. You're the problem with prayer. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, But maybe not. We'll see. The problem with prayer, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start reading in verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. For what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he's not going to give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, your Father who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again, as we always do, for the privilege of reading and hearing your word, for the joy of having it open before us on our laps, your living, active, true word, through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us and into us and teaches us and transforms us. Thank you, God. And we pray that this morning the experience of your word by your spirit would bear much fruit for your glory. And that we would become more faithful passionate followers of Jesus because of the truth we discover in your word today. So we ask for these things, Lord, and we ask together that you please help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to your word and furthers your purposes for the glory of your name. And help us to listen, to pay attention, to hear and to receive and to obey what is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is the job of the preacher? What is the job of the preacher? Some would say the job of the preacher is to make me feel guilty. And I'm quite good at it. The guilty part, not the preaching part. Oh, that fell flat. (laughs) Second service, you guys are hard. The things that first service laughs at, you don't laugh at. And it makes me wonder about you. Just want you to know how I feel. Let me try again. What if the job of the preacher was to make you feel guilty? If the job of the preacher was to make you feel guilty, then this text is low-hanging fruit because nobody prays enough and certainly nobody prays too much. Was that a better intro for you? Are you feeling better now? A little more responsive? Okay, you know how I get. So anyway... Nobody prays too much. Who who gets to the end of their life and says, you know what I really regret? Praying so much. Nobody says that. There's a lot of things that we do too much. Maybe too much eating, too much drinking, too much shopping, even good things we do too much, too much exercise, too much work, too much surfing. No, never, never too much of that. But prayer is not one of those things where we generally say, you know, I just, 
I pray too much. But I think that if we actually believed the text that is before us, we would pray much more. And if we really believe the implications of it, we would almost maybe move toward praying too much as if that were possible. I think part of the problem with prayer and our prayer lives is we don't really believe this text and its implications. Jesus here is inviting us to pursue God, inviting us to pursue God. And the glorious fact of the gospel is that God has and does pursue us. Say amen. And the glorious implications of the gospel are that we have now been brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in this relationship, we are, in this text, invited to pursue God as good father. We're invited to pursue God as good father. And the language given to us here, the verbs that Jesus uses, are pursuit sort of verbs. Going hard after language. He says, ask, seek, knock. And it's in the the present tense and their imperatives in the Greek, which means Jesus is really saying this. When it comes to prayer and pursuing God, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. That's what he's telling us to do. Now, maybe his use of those three verbs are sort of progressive in nature in that they denote a greater uh, amount of intensity as you go. Asking, but then kind of seeking, but then knocking. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's talking about different levels of intensity, or maybe he's just using multiple verbs to describe the same thing. In either case, what is pictured here is engagement with and pursuit of God in asking, seeking, knocking prayer. Now, when we think about prayer, and this text might make us think about this, most of us think about prayer as a way to get what we want. But maybe God thinks about prayer as a way to get what he wants. And what God wants is you. What God wants is us in daily, dependent, loving relationship with him. And maybe that is why, in part, why prayer exists. Because if you think about it, prayer actually doesn't make that much sense if you think about some of the attributes of God. I mean, God is, the scriptures tell us, omniscient, right? He knows all things. Jesus already told us in chapter 6, verse 8, that the Father knows what we have need of before we even ask. He knows all things. He knows what we need. So it's kind of weird to go to him and ask him for what we need. You're not giving him any new information. It's not like, God, here's my prayer. Here's what I need. He's like, I didn't know. If I would have known, I would have done something about it. Don't you love when people pray and they're like informing God of all these things, preaching at God? He knows your little sermon. He knows all things. He's also omnipotent, meaning he is all powerful and he's sufficient in and of himself. God doesn't need our help in any way. And we believe from scripture that God is sovereign. 
He is in control of all things and he is going to accomplish his will. So we could say then that logically and in many ways theologically, prayer doesn't even make sense. God knows everything already anyway. He's able to do everything in and of himself, in himself, excuse me, and he's going to accomplish his purposes and he's in control. So we could say logically and theologically that prayer doesn't make that much sense. But we might say from this text that relationally, prayer makes a lot of sense. Do you know anybody, have you ever known anybody that is bordering, on, that just bordering online and praying too much? I want to say that, Mary, it's too hard. Praise a lot. Anybody know someone that's just one of those prayer warriors? They pray a lot. Raise your hand if you know someone. Okay, you know someone like that. Have you ever noticed that they just have like this effervescent glow to them sometimes? This thing about them, their lives are like Moses when he came down off the mountain after being with God for so long and Israel looked at him like, you're glowing, dude, with the presence of God. You ever noticed that on someone? Have you ever noticed somehow these people, or sometimes these people that spend so much time in prayer that it's like they have like some little secret that we don't know about? Where you're like, oh, sister, how are you doing? Good. <laughs> okay. How are you? Blessed. <laughs> like them and God have something that we don't know about. Okay, I guess I'm good and blessed. Should I be good and blessed? It's almost like they have this inside secret. You just know they've been spending time with the Lord. There's just this quality to their lives and you can tell that like good friends, they're in this place of this, this understanding with God. I see that in people I know. I wish I had that. But prayer is hard for me. What's the problem with prayer? Why is prayer hard for me? I think prayer is hard for me because I am generally result-oriented. Okay, I'm a good old radical Western individualist, America type A, get-her-done cowboy type of guy. I am result-oriented, like the, 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 the end justifies the means. Like, I'm, I'm going to ram it in the last five yards. Like we're going we're gonna to get this thing done, right? Isn't that how we are as Americans? Like, we're result-oriented. I think part of the problem is that I find God to be process-oriented. I'm radically goal-oriented, but God is radically relationally-oriented. The goal is no big deal for God. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign. He's going to accomplish it. We get all caught up in the goal, but God's already there outside of time and space. He's like, I'm here. And so we find that God is concerned about the process. The process that takes place in us as we ask and seek and knock. And so the prayer to, or the invitation to pray here is not so much an invitation to get what we want as an invitation to experience what God wants, which is intimacy with him. Let me illustrate this by returning to your favorite verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you hope, future and a hope. Pause right there, look at me. 
There's the goal, right? We read that and we say, okay, yes, that's, that's good enough for me right there. Let's get her done. If, if that's the plan, let's get to the place of welfare and no calamity and hope and a future. That's why you have that tattoo. That's your favorite verse. But look what God says. Should have gotten the next verse tattooed. <laughs> then, once we've settled, in other words, the fact that God has the goal in hand, that he's in control, that he's going to work our good, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, says the Lord. It's very clear that God is the goal of the text. And to quiet our little hearts, God says, the goals that you have in mind of a future and welfare and hope and no calamity, I've got those in hand. What I don't always have in hand, so to speak, is your heart. So let me tell you that I'm good and I hold the future. Let me invite you to call upon me and pray to me. And I will listen to you, he says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You see how we go wrong? We go for the goal with all of our heart. God says, I am the goal. Go for me. He's process, relationship oriented. Think again about Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the attractive part of that verse to most of us is desires of your heart, right? There's an honest sister, Diane, thank you. We're like, oh, desires of my heart, this sounds good. I, this, is, this is great. But the thrust of the verse is delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Maybe through a process of asking, seeking, and knocking, we become surprised to find what the desires of our hearts actually are now. After we've spent time asking, seeking, and knocking. Because prayer is, and it is meant to be, a transformative experience because it's based upon relationship with God, not getting things from God. It's based upon communing with God and an experience with God, not merely accomplishing our goals. So there's this deeper call to ask, to seek, to knock. So I find sometimes when I pray that there is this thing that changes in me regarding the desires of my heart. I desire my heart. I begin wanting what God wants. Other times I am just struck by the kindness of God. You know, it's not that often that what I see as a good gift and what God sees as a good gift for me are the same. You know what I'm talking about? Like, God, I know I have a big truck, but a bigger truck would be a good gift. (laughs) It's just not that often that those two things line up. But sometimes I am struck by the utter kindness of God as good father to give to his children. And we think of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask prayer or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. 
So Jesus is inviting us into this process of keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That has more to do with God getting what he wants you than us getting what we want. And this transformative relational experience. But now, if we look at the fullness of Scripture, we cannot say that the only reason that God calls us to come to Him and pray is merely relational. I'm about to say something very theologically important, so take note of it. It's this. God in His sovereignty has established in the world a contingency. We'll put it on the screen. God in His sovereignty has established in the world a contingency. That is to say, the contingency is prayer, in case you're not getting the sermon. That is to say that there are some things that God will only do in response to prayer and other things that God may not do because there was not prayer. God in his sovereignty has established in our universe a contingency that is this thing of asking, seeking, and knocking, coming before him in prayer. Because you cannot read the Bible and see prayers happening there without getting the fact that prayer changes things. I mean, prayer really does change things. Situations, circumstances, people, nations, opposition. Like Prayer really changes things. God has put this in place, this contingency that when we pray, there are certain things God will do that he won't do when we don't pray, and there are certain things God won't do because we did pray and won't do. For example, intercessory prayer, that is praying for others. Take, for example, Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, uh, Moses has led the the children of Israel out of Egypt He's taking them to Mount Sinai. Israel's all camped around Mount Sinai there. And Moses goes up on the mountain to be with the Lord. And Moses was one of those guys that almost prayed too much. Like he's just spending all this time with the Lord. For Israel, he literally did pray too much because they begin grumbling around the base of Mount Sinai. And they're like, dude, what's the deal with Mo? Mo is up on this mountain forever and we're just down here waiting around and there he is with God. What's going on? So, of course, Israel does what Israel did. They make themselves a golden calf, and their high priest says, this is now your God, and they begin to worship it. And God gets a little upset. And God says to Moses while they're on the mountain communing together, Moses, your people. Normally, God says, Moses, my people. Now, God says, Moses, your people have made for themselves an idol and are worshiping it. Moses, get down the mountain. I am going to judge Israel and wipe them off off the face of the earth and I will make a great nation from you instead. Exodus 32. Now, God is just and God is righteous and God would have been fully justified in his judgment against Israel for their idolatry, for their worshiping and going after this false god. What does Moses, the intercessor, do? Moses asks God and said, God, according to your character and your kindness and your covenantal faithfulness, I am asking you to have mercy on this people. 
He prayed. What did God do? God said, okay. It actually says in the text, God changed his mind. Now we bristle theologically, it changed his mind and so we should. For the scriptures say elsewhere, God is not a man that he should change his mind. The idea of that text is different than when men and women change their minds. We change our minds for one of two reasons. Either we did not have all the information or we were dead wrong. We have already established that God knows all the information. He is omniscient and God is never wrong. God is altogether righteous. What this means is that God then in response to Moses' prayer relented from his course of action. God was going to judge Israel and they deserved it. But because one person prayed and said, God, I ask you to have mercy. God literally in the Hebrew relented from an undesirable course of action and extended mercy. For God loves mercy. Put this in juxtaposition to Ezekiel chapter 22. In Ezekiel chapter 22, Israel is in trouble once again. They've been playing the harlot with false gods and God is upset with them and God is going to judge them and he pronounces judgment and then it says at the end of Ezekiel 22, and God looked around for a person who would stand in the gap and plead the case, but he couldn't find one and so then God judged them. Nobody prayed. There are certain things that God will only do in response to prayer. God, have mercy. God actually did it. Other things God won't do because nobody prayed. I mean, I was speaking at a pastor's conference this week at uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And um, I don't travel and speak much. I don't enjoy it. And there was 1,500 pastors there. So I was rather nervous. You guys make me nervous. So you can imagine 1,500 pastors. I was, I was nervous going into it for days and weeks and perhaps months. And so I'm there. Um, and before I went, I asked my mom, who is my most faithful, powerful, awesome intercessor in the world, prays for me nonstop. I said, Mom, I'm going to speak to these pastors. I'm nervous. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Will you pray for me? So, of course, my mom is praying for me. So I came home from this thing, and uh, I went to go visit my mom. And she said, how was it? I said, Mom, it was, it was honestly amazing. I had a great time. I felt super comfortable and free in the pulpit. And I, I wasn't like scared at all. I wasn't nervous at all. It was unbelievable. I, it was great. She said, she was also watching my daughter at the time. She said, oh, that's cool. Because when I was watching Fifi, I was supposed to speak at 9.30. She says, at about 9.15, we were walking around the corner from the house to walk toward the beach. And I just prayed that God would give you comfort and remove all anxiety from you. The interesting thing about that is the worship leader, Evan Wickham, started his worship set at 9 a.m. He was supposed to go till 9.30. He went a little long, but there's grace, ate into my time a little bit. He was supposed to go till 9.30. And about halfway into that worship set, I'm sitting there worshiping. And all of a sudden, I kind of snapped to attention. And I felt like I forgot something. And I start looking around. Oh, no, my microphone's on. I look on the ground. There's my notes there. I felt like I forgot something because I had such an absence of being nervous or anxious. I just felt totally comfortable. And it was so foreign to me. I like took note of it. Like, wow, I, wow, I feel really great. 
And so when I got home and my mom said I was praying for you at 9.15, I realized it was at 9.15 that I snapped to attention and had this overwhelming sense of comfort and peace and lack of anxiety from God. Now, there's a little example of a mama praying for a self-conscious, insecure, over-ego-inflated pastor little boy. And it really changed something. And that's cute, and you giggle. But what about Moses and Ezekiel? I mean, prayer is relational to be sure, but it's more than that. Prayer actually changes things. I think if I, if I really grasped that, I would pray more. But here's what I find to be the problem. I think where I struggle with prayer is in the area of unanswered prayer. When God doesn't seem to be listening and responsive. When God doesn't act in ways that seem to make his goodness and his sovereignty apparent to me. Who here has experienced unanswered prayer? Raise your hand. I think that's a common experience, at least the perception of it. That's not biblically abnormal. I often feel, maybe you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 102. Look at the way he's talking to God. Hear my prayer, O God, and let my cry for help come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to hear me. In the day when I call, answer quickly. Give me your attention. Do you get the, the sense of where he's at? Do you, ever, do you ever feel this way? Like he's praying, but he feels like his prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. God, where, this is the day of distress. This is the moment where I need you. I'm asking you for this thing. God, quickly. Then he says in verse three, for my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and is withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread, right? Like times are so hard for this guy. He's seeking, he just, because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I don't know what that means, but it must not be good. (laughs) Maybe better in the zoo or something. I don't know. I become like an owl of the waste places. Don't know what that means. Not good. I do know what this means. I lie awake. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be up all night saying, God, are you hearing me? I become like a lonely bird on a housetop. No idea. I think the reason that prayer is hard is because of what seems to be unanswered prayer in my life. And there's all the usual explanations, of course. Some of you have thought of them already. Well, we often hear, well, God did answer, just not in the way you expected. Awesome. Or this one, the answer is always, God always answers prayers, just that the answer is always either yes, no, or wait. Okay, so God is like my parents. (laughs) Or more seriously, this one. You know, 
If only you had prayed more, or if only you had more faith, or if only you had better motives, that's your problem, Britt, your motives were wrong. Or this one. Well, you know, really prayer is us adjusting to God's will. I believe that all of those things from Scripture have some degree of truth to them. I'm just saying that none of them helped me in the dark night of unanswered prayers. When my eight-year-old daughter died of cancer, when all I did, all we did for years was pray that she won it, and then she did. I heard all of these. I'm just saying in the dark night of unanswered prayer, they didn't help. And for unanswered prayer, I have no answer. But I think that Jesus suggests an answer to us here in this text. When he says, your father who is in heaven is good and wants to give you good gifts. Now that is both a non-answer and the best and only answer. Why did it go this way, God, and not that way? Your Father who is in heaven is good and wants to give you good gifts. Both a non-answer and the only answer. And a really hard answer. A really hard answer on the night of unanswered prayer. But you know with whom we keep company. Who else experienced unanswered prayer on a really hard night? Jesus. Jesus in Gethsemane. Matthew 26 reminds us, and Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Speaking of the cross. Yet not as I will, but as you will. This is not a make-believe prayer of Christ. We're told that he prayed this three times. We're told that this prayer was so real to him that he was sweating drops of blood through the pores of his skin. In the face of the horror of the cross and the reality of the weight of of all the sins of the whole world upon him, Jesus said, Father... Please, if there's any other option, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Let me not go through this. Three times he prayed that, sweating blood. And in the end, as we know, our Lord said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And the only reason that Jesus could say that was because he believed the answer he gave us, that his Father in heaven was good and would give him good gifts. If he didn't believe that, then his prayer, like our prayer, ends differently. The resolve 
was because he believed and he knew that his father was good. Here's the catch I find in my own prayer life. Sometimes hard for me to lay hold of the fact that the father is good when everything is going bad. When, as we read in the, for the psalmist, sometimes it just seems like heaven is silent. Jesus would say to us two things in this text. The first thing he would say there is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. You know, the danger is not in doubting whether or not God is good. The danger is in abandoning your pursuit of him. We all doubt. Doubt is not the death of faith. Doubt is a fertile ground in which faith grows. When I say, God, this experience hasn't been good and I feel as though I'm abandoned to you, but I keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, that is not the death of faith. That is the birth of a deeper faith. And I find that I discover what Psalm 37, 8 says, or whatever Psalm it is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If we abandon then the keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, then we fail to taste and we've removed ourselves from the place of that refuge. Jesus would say to us, these are hard words. These are hard words. He would say to us, in the dark night of the soul, in the Gethsemane, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And he would hang that command. He would hang that command on this truth. The second thing he would say to us, your father who is in heaven is good and wants to give you good gifts. And we would look back with 2020 vision and say, in the messiness of our lives, the evidence that God is good is Gethsemane itself. For a while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The evidence that God is good is the cross. I find at times of great loss that I have to look to the cross. I have to look at Gethsemane because life doesn't always line up. God is good. But Gethsemane tells us that God is good. And so this is the anchor to which prayer is tethered. My father in heaven is good and he wants to give me good things. So even in the midst of unanswered prayers, it seems I will keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Even sometimes, brothers and sisters, with hard words. I spent some time yesterday talking to a couple whose daughter just died. And they had hard words for God. Hard questions about God. And they were, they were living in that tension. Solid, solid Christian people who have always believed God is good. 
But what does it mean in this moment that God is good? That creates a very real tension in our lives. And that tension is not wrong. That tension is not abnormal. That tension is seen throughout Scripture in any number of psalms. We'll look at Psalm 55. The psalmist says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and don't hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint. Complaining to God, things have gone wrong for him. And surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Then he says what we have all said at one time or another. I wish that I had wings like a dove. I'd just fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander so far away. I would lodge in the wilderness and I would hasten to some place of refuge away from the stormy wind and tempest. Then he turns a corner and he does exactly what Jesus is telling us to do. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He says, but as for me, I will call upon God. Here's where he believes that God is good. And the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and noon, asking, seeking, knocking. I will complain, hard words for God, and murmur. And he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For there are many who strive with me. And look where he ends. This is the end of the psalm. He says, so, okay, here's his advice as a sufferer to us fellow sufferers. So, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. It's a faith statement. That's a statement that has to listen to what Jesus says in our text. Your father who is in heaven is good He wants to give you good gifts. Hard for us, what we consider being shaken and what God considers shaken are not the same thing. God will never give you more than you could bear. Killer, bro. (laughs) But Jesus, who himself suffered on the cross and in Gethsemane, offers to us, us this anchor for prayer. Your Father in heaven is good and he wants to give you good gifts. And when everything else in life seems bad, we look to the cross. If God isn't good, there was never a cross. If God were not absolutely good, Gethsemane would have ended differently. But we believe that our Father in heaven is good and wants to give us good gifts. Our own parenting is based upon that comparison. And God said in the text, you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. In comparison to God's goodness, we're evil. So, seek the Lord. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He is good. Here's where I end. 
I've been in the place. Perhaps some of you are in the place where it's too much now to ask and to seek and to knock. I did that, God. I did that. It didn't work. It didn't come through. Nothing has changed. Here's the good news. God himself comes seeking us. Jesus himself stands at the door of our hearts and knocks and says, open, and I will come into you and we will have fellowship together. There are certainly days where we give up on asking and seeking and knocking, but God has not given up on us. Jesus came to seek and to save, and he stands at our hearts knocking. Amen? Lord, you know what we need. You know where we're at. You know the power with which we pray sometimes and other times the feeble frailty of our pursuit. Maybe we just praise the church today. God, please come and find us. Let us be found by you in our dark places and our hard places. You are the God who seeks. Jesus, you are the one who knocks. So for those of us that have strength, Lord, help us to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, to press into you. For we believe by faith that you are good and you give good things. For those of us that don't appear to have the grace right now, thank you that you'll come and find us. We trust your goodness above our own. We trust your seeking above our own. In Jesus' name, amen.